Hello, and welcome to the AUA's Genetic Testing in Prostate Cancer Considerations for Urologists and their Patients webinar. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates this internet live activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credits. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. Please visit the AUA University to view faculty and education council disclosures. The AUA would like to thank AstraZeneca, Merck, and Pfizer Incorporated for providing an independent educational grant in support of this webinar. Finally, I'd like to extend a special thank you to our course director, Dr. Todd Morgan, for his time, talent, and expertise in developing this program. Well, hello, and welcome to the AUA Summer School webinar on genetic testing and prostate cancer. I'm Todd Morgan from the University of Michigan. So just um, let me quickly go through the activity goal, which is to increase urologist understanding related to the newest treatment options for prostate cancer. It's a 60 minute panel discussion led by experts in the field. We'll meet all of them in a second who will explore how to translate the latest scientific advances into routine clinical practice, improving the care of patients who are at a markedly elevated risk of progression and death from prostate cancer. These are the learning objectives here. Number one, state the criteria for genetic testing of prostate cancer patients, the gene panels available and options for testing these men. Two, interpret results of genetic testing and relay this information to patients in order to facilitate shared decision-making based on the test results. Three, to explain the importance of testing for germline mutations and their implications for novel therapies such as PARP inhibitors. And four, to counsel men with BRCA1 and 2 mutations, Lynch syndrome, and other key inherited syndromes regarding their prostate cancer risk and appropriate strategies for cancer screening. So now, without further ado, I, I get to introduce our three true experts who are joining us this afternoon. We're really lucky to have Dr. Matt Cooperberg. He is the Helen Diller Family Chair in Urology at UCSF. He's also a fellow Peloton fan. We have Dr. Beta Geary. <laughs> Beta is a medical oncologist at Jefferson University and she directs the Jefferson University Cancer Genetic Service. Uh, and she really is the I'm sure the real deal genetics expert. We're very lucky to have you. Thanks for joining us. And Dr. Dan Lin. Dan is the Pritt Family Endowed Chair for Prostate Cancer Research and Chief of Urologic Oncology at the University of Washington. I'll tell you that Dan is also really one of the people who inspired me to go into urologic oncology. And so um, really it's an honor to have you here, Dan. Thanks so much. So, so we've got this um, discussion broken down into four different segments and very roughly kind of 10 minutes each, each segment. And you know we'll, we'll go a little bit longer probably in some areas, a little bit shorter in other areas. But the first one is the history and evolution of genetic testing in prostate cancer. And, and you know, the, the genetic basis of prostate cancer is not a new story. I mean, it's been over 25 years since Mary Claire King discovered the BRCA or breast cancer gene. And so, you know, Matt, let me start with you. You know, why do you think there's suddenly this big push and interest to bring genetic testing into the prostate cancer setting? You know, I think it's really just an increasing recognition of the biology and the extent to which uh, inborn mutations drive a subset of prostate cancers and their behavior. And I think an increasing recognition that the subset is not as small as we once thought. You know, it's long been recognized that prostate cancer is one of the most heritable cancers, uh, but we never had a single smoking gun uh, along the lines of BRCA and breast cancer. Uh, but a number of studies in the last decade have really shown that, that even in prostate, uh, genes like BRCA1, and in particular BRCA2, drive the behavior and aggressiveness of a lot, uh, of a growing proportion, 
uh, proportion of prostate cancers, which is growingly recognized to be large. So there was a paper by Pritchard in uh, 2016 uh, showing nearly 12% of men with metastatic prostate cancer have a an inborn a genetic defect. Uh, a couple other papers earlier in the decade from Elena Castro and Ross Eels uh, found that these cancers driven by an inherited mutation actually have a worse prognosis um, among metastatic disease than uh, than other men with metastatic disease. So, you know, it's, it really is, a, I think, this growing body of literature um, and the availability of medications, uh, which are targeted specifically to men with specific uh, uh, mutations. Yeah, thanks. So, I mean, really, that Pritchard paper was uh, a big one, and it kind of yeah, yeah. surprisingly out of the blue, right? Uh, you know, all of a sudden, this 12% number of yeah. patients with metastatic yeah. prostate cancer with these germline mutations. Dan, any any other thoughts on you know on kind of why we're suddenly interested? You know, 10 years ago we were interested, but if not like this, what's happened? Yeah. Well, I think that Matt touched on it a bit, but just being really practical. I mean, if you think about how we how we're how we're choosing therapies now, we have um, some therapies that require a, a, a defect, uh, so require a mutation. And when therapy is linked to a mutation or a marker and demands that, then actually we all perk up and listen, first of all. On another very practical level, um, many of the guidelines, international guidelines now, are geared towards focusing on these, looking for these mutations, particularly in metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer, but also in high-risk localized disease. And again, these are uh, international European guidelines in the United States. I think NCCN has a fair amount of penetrance amongst all disciplines. Of course, the AUA guidelines, and then uh, you know, VEDA led a huge uh, a Philadelphia consensus uh, statement that really focused and hone in on, on who to do this on. So it's really a, a practical level, just it's actually standard of care now. Uh, so that, that's changed quite a bit. Yeah, makes sense. And so, yeah, so you know, when we talk about mutations, that, you know, we, sometimes we're thinking germline genetics, sometimes we're thinking mutations in the tumor. Veda, can you touch on, you know, what, what is the difference here? I think this comes up a lot with patients and, it, it's, you know, it can't always explain it clearly. Yes, it does come up a lot. And um, in, in sort of two big broad buckets, it's really sort of focused down into the germline testing, which is looking for inherited genetic mutations. Um, versus somatic testing. And even in the somatic category, there could be the next generation sequencing panels that are being done for um, identification of targeted therapies. But also, very classically, for a long time in neurology practice, there have been um, uh, molecular tests that have been done on tumors uh, or prostate tissues as well. And so, um, educating patients about that and the different types of information that we can glean from these different tests becomes really important. So, in germline testing, we can test. Um, saliva samples more and more now, but of course blood samples as well to look for inherited uh, mutations. These mutations uh, might inform uh, therapies now, particularly in the metastatic setting, but it certainly is important as well in terms of the um, hereditary implications for cancers, not just prostate cancer, potentially other cancers uh, for men and their families. The somatic testing, and if we talk about tumor-based uh, next-generation sequencing testing, typically is being done obviously on tumors, looking for targetable mutations, actionable mutations, um, particularly in the metastatic setting, for example, for PARP inhibitor therapy um, or clinical trials eligibility. And there can be clues in somatic testing that potentially a mutation is inherited, but that requires confirmatory germline testing. Some of those clues are high variant allele fraction, um, 
corresponding uh, ancestry, such as a tumor BRCA2 mutation in a man who's of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, or um, aligned family history or personal history. So there can be clues, but it requires um, confirmatory germline testing as well. Is, is the reverse also true that if you you know somebody comes in and say you know they're they have a BRCA2 mutation in their family, is their somatic tumor testing likely to be informative? Uh, it really depends on their clinical picture. So um, if this is a, a man with prostate cancer and there is a BRCA2 mutation in the family, uh, a lot of times for metastatic disease, it's a blanket indication at this point in terms of the germline testing, but then also it depends on the clinical indications for their tumor uh, from their you know, aspect of treatment. So um, yeah. I think there's an overlap, but, but there are some distinctive features. Yeah, makes sense. So, and then, I mean, what, what kind of language do you use when you are sitting with a patient and trying to explain these two different types of testing, like when you, you know, in, in terms of, you know, lay terms? Yeah, so, um, you know, we actually talk about, you know, mother, father, and how, you know, we all have half of our genes from mom, half of our genes from our father, and that when we talk about hereditary cancer testing, we're talking about those genes that are inherited from mom and dad, and that if there is a mutation in the family, let's say in, in mom or dad, that it's a 50% chance of inheriting that mutation, like a flip of a coin. So the only way to know is to actually do the testing to know if the mutation was inherited. When we're talking about somatic testing, we're actually talking about uh, mutations that a person can just acquire in their either in their lifetime or in the in the process of their tumor development and progression. So it's within the person versus shared within the family. Awesome, that's that's very helpful. Thanks. It's, so you know, kind of Matt, coming back to you, what, you know, and I've got a slide here to help a bit. This, this slide shows <laughs> that data really famously from that Pritchard paper, but um, what are the key genes that we're talking about? You know, we've mentioned some of them, but not all of them. And, and then what's what's going on? Why do these genes, why do mutations in these genes end up predisposing to certain kinds of cancer like prostate cancer? Yeah, this class of mutations is, is all about uh, DNA repair mechanisms. You know, of course, the human genome is about 3 billion base pairs long, and every time a cell divides, it has to copy the entire length of DNA. Um, and errors happen all the time. So there's inherent proofreading mechanisms in the DNA polymerase and all the associated cellular apparatus, but mistakes happen. Um, and in some cancers, like colon, for example, these mis mismatch uh, repair misses are a major driver of prostate cancer, oh, I'm sorry, of colon de of cancer development. And in some cases, for example, in Lynch syndrome, uh, there is an increased risk of prostate cancer as well. It's about twofold, uh, but it's not a major driver of the aggressive subset of prostate cancers that we've been talking about so far. For prostate, most, much more of the story has been in the more serious mutations, which is the double-stranded uh, DNA errors uh, or breaks caused by radiation, caused by oxidative stress, et cetera. Um, and again, the body has a whole series of, of innate repair mechanisms to fix double-stranded breaks in the DNA. But because both strands are broken, when the mechanism fails, there's no easy fix, and you've now got a basically blunt-ended strand of DNA, which is free to recombine with other blunt-ended strands of DNA. So you can get much more serious chromosomal rearrangements, uh, most of which are lethal to the cell, but when they're not, these can uh, lead to uh, a more aggressive cancer phenotype. Uh, so there's a number of genes that are involved in these double-stranded DNA repairs, um, which, which have now been identified um, as drivers of prostate cancer development and aggressiveness. Um, BRCA2 is by far the most prominent. Um, BRCA1, uh, again, a bigger factor for breast cancer, 
um, is identified in a small number, smaller number of men. Um, and then there's a whole series of other uh, genes which are related uh, to the repair mechanisms uh, driven by the BRCA's um, TEC2 and ATM, for example, are more related to shutting down the cell cycle apparatus, cell division, in the setting of a non-repaired uh, DNA break. So you know, putting the brakes on the system um, if BRCA and its associated proteins have not had a chance to do their work. Um, and you can see there's obviously a whole, a growing number of, of uh, other genes which have been identified, uh, but the two BRCAs in check and ATM are the ones that uh, come up most commonly in, in panels when we're looking for indicators of aggressiveness. That was great. And I think, I mean, that, that point that you made that, right, that there are, yes, these all get categories at some level as DNA damage repair genes, but they're not all created equal. They don't work the same. They don't have the same cancer risk. They, in fact, the mutations in, you know, the same gene, different mutations in the same gene likely don't carry the same cancer risk. And so, you know, it's complicated. We have a whole heck of a lot still to learn. Um, and we're, you know, we'll go into the different types of multi-gene panel tests that, that exist, but these generally all get tested, but they don't all carry the same weight um, in terms of clinical interpretation, right? So, so just to summarize this segment real quick, we have some bullet points here on this slide. Um, I know many people won't be looking at this slide when they listen to the to this um, recording, and so just I'll, I'll highlight it. You know, the summary is the high rate of germline mutations um, exists and is associated with DNA damage repair and metastatic prostate cancer. Also, many patients with localized prostate cancer have germline mutations in these same genes. BRCA1 and BRCA2 are associated with more aggressive prostate cancer, clearly, and then germline testing assesses non-cancer cells. Um, like data says, and finds heritable mutations, whereas somatic testing is performed on the tumor itself. Um, so I just fast forwarded too quickly. There we go. So segment two, uh, we'll kind of switch gears now to talking about testing criteria and options. Um, and, you know, really it's the issue is like, how do we navigate the criteria for genetic testing? There's, you know, different gene panels. How do we counsel patients um, regarding their options? And so let me go back to Veda, and just say, could you talk about the criteria for genetic testing of prostate cancer patients? Sure, so um, they can be quite complicated. And what I wanna do is point um, the audience to two of the NCCN guidelines that address germline testing and um, tumor testing for prostate cancer. And um, these guidelines are within the NCCN prostate cancer treatment uh, guideline, as well as the NCCN hereditary breast, ovarian, and pancreatic guideline. Actually, they uh, sort of rolled out first in the uh, breast ovarian guideline and then really expanded out when testing became much more mainstream um, into the prostate cancer guideline, so have expanded in both places. So it's important to keep an eye on both of these guidelines when thinking about uh, which men qualify for um, uh, genetic testing. So the um, Overall, the, one of the key criteria for germline testing is metastatic disease. So that is clear, that is uniformly agreed upon in terms of um, which men qualify for germline testing. The other um, uh, criteria are broken down in different ways between these two guidelines and they're not completely aligned. So that's where a little bit of the trickiness comes in when thinking of how to interpret these guidelines. The prostate cancer guideline um, looks at um, germline testing uh, by risk categories. And so breaks it down by um, you know, high risk, very high risk, intermediate risk, risk, and low risk. And really in terms of the um, high risk or very high risk uh, groups, um, those are sort of recommended for germline testing. 
When looking at the more lower risk categories uh, of the prostate cancer guideline, they do um, recommend to look at um, the pathology as well as um, uh, family history. So ductal or interductal um, histology, and then family history that seems suspicious. So um, early prostate cancer diagnosis in the family um, or in the patient, um, a death from prostate cancer, or other family history that seems indicative of hereditary breast and ovarian cancer or Lynch syndrome. So expanding out from just the family history of prostate cancer to include breast, ovarian, rectal, endometrial, pancreatic, um, other cancers that are indicative of these syndromes. Um, the hereditary breast, ovarian, and pancreatic guideline um, also, like I said, addresses germline testing for prostate cancer, and they break it down also looking at um, metastatic prostate cancer or introductal pathology. They do have some different criteria for looking at family history, looking at one close blood relative or two or more close blood relatives, depending on age, a diagnosis, and the types of cancers. Um, they bring in Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. Both guidelines actually have that embedded as well. Um, so those are sort of the, the two, you know, like was mentioned, NCCN is kind of considered the standard of care. So those are the two guidelines that uh, providers really need to be um, well-versed in. And then you're going to find other professional organizations or consensus statements that are the purpose is to kind of look at existing and emerging data, which is happening really rapidly, to kind of get um, a better handle on perhaps refining the guidelines or informing the guidelines. So um, there was, as was mentioned, the Philadelphia Consensus Conference that was held, and that was a multidisciplinary expert input on thinking of ways to simplify guidelines, but also have that informed by the evidence. There's also the European Advanced Prostate Cancer Consensus Conference. That's also a major contributor here in terms of thinking of guidelines for testing, um, as well as professional organization statements. So AUA, ASCO, they have their own um, input here, which is also really important to take a look at. Uh, that's great. So just you know to kind of reiterate, I think you underplayed the significance of the Philadelphia, um, you know, consensus guidelines. That, that, you know that the fact that you have brought that together now twice you know, two separate years with two major publications. And for those who haven't had a chance to read the the, the manuscript that was published in Journal of Clinical Oncology a few months ago, it is such a great summary in this space. And it's just a great example of just, just deciding to get people together who, you know, know what they're talking about in the best possible way, but still there are no necessarily clear answers and trying to hash out some recommendations amongst amidst all the uncertainty. So. Um, th that really you can't say enough about what that conference has done, I think. Dan, Dan um, can you talk a little bit about what gene panels are available? I've got a, you know. A, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. I think I'd, I'd, I'd emphasize again what, what's shown on the slide there, the, the paper that has been mentioned a couple of times now um, that many of us were part of and, and VEDA led. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's sort of like evergreen uh, material that will always be there for us. I'll also say that on a practical level for the urologists that are listening, I think that um, the, the value of just a family history is incredibly important and, and really underemphasized. I mean, we all lead busy clinics and I added in my epic uh, template to ask about breast cancer. I, I didn't do that for the first 10 years or so. For the last 10 years, I've asked every patient about breast cancer history in their family and ovarian cancer. And I just added it as a reminder to, to say, to ask about breast cancer or prostate cancer in the family, and it just gives you an indication about uh, what to do the next step. With regards to that next step in testing, there are many, many options. I can say there are numerous companies that are involved in this, particularly in this area of germline testing. They all have their own set of genes that, that they look at. There's a great amount of overlap. 
So it's not as if there's one that's clearly better. Um, all the companies offer sort of cancer panels. Um, those cancer panels might be cancer specific, such as prostate cancer risk or breast cancer risk. There are some that offer these sort of pan cancer risk. Um, oftentimes they're combining multiple genes together to give a uh, sort of a overall cancer risk. But usually what's happening is they're reporting specific genes and Matt went through many of these uh, in the slide the, from the Pritchard study, but BRCA2 being the primary one, and they're reporting uh, the mutations and the variants uh, that are found in that area. I would say that all of, or the majority of the ones that we'll be discussing today are what I think many of us are terms sort of the, the clinical grade tests or the ones that really are linked towards perhaps actual mutations. These are the ones that are ordered by genetic counselors, oncologists, your, your physicians, um, and um, they are reimbursed and so forth and paid for by, by our payers. And they, again, have a very high bar. I think it's an appropriate time now to sort of not uh, conflate that or confuse that with what many of us look at as kind of recreational genetics. And that might be more like the 23andMe or um, Ancestry.com type of uh, platforms, which have a little bit different bar and also don't go to as much fine detail. They have oftentimes have these sort of polygenic risk scores that are, are not, again, as high or as fine detailed as the other ones we're talking about today. They might have sort of the founding mutations, Ashkenazi Jewish or so forth mutations, but they don't necessarily go to as great of a detail as uh, the other available tests. And I think yeah, so that, that that is something that we have to define. So suffice it to say, if, if somebody comes in and you say, well, I think we should consider germline genetic testing, and they say, well, actually, I just did 23andMe a few weeks ago, and it's all good, yeah. you're, that's not enough, right? Yeah. It's, it's really not enough. I mean, right. there, and I think that we, we sort of misunderstood initially, oh, there's a BRCA2 mutation. Well, there are thousands, th literally thousands of mutations in just the BRCA2. Some of them are very important and are very important and uncommon. Some of them are very common and maybe less important. And there's an interpretive skill here that I think also we, we underestimate and it's an evolving field as we speak. Yeah, yeah, no question. So you know, let's turn back to Matt for a sec. You know, what's, what are your thoughts, Matt, in terms of who typically counsels patients you know, regarding genetic testing and orders the test? Yeah, well, I think evolution, which Dan just said is the right word here. And actually, I'd, I'd love to hear from, from you and from Dan, too, on this. I think this is evolving quite quickly in our practice at UCSF. Uh, and I think we're going to see a shift if it has not already happened in various centers from the genetic counselors being the primary purveyors to oncologists and urologists actually taking the, the leading role uh, more frequently as these tests are getting done more often as the indications are expanding. Um, I can speak for our center. We actually have had a very nice structured family history built into our EPIC across the cancer center since we went live with EPIC. So that's been a really nice guide for us. Um, and, you know, as the guidelines have become clearer and clearer in terms of who should be offered testing, um, you know, my practice has been to refer to the genetic counselors who uh, then make the decision to actually order the test. But and you don't have a problem getting them in for those appointments. No, well, I was about to say, I mean, just in the last year or so, we're starting to hear that they're hitting capacity. Um, you know, the, the policy actually initially was uh, really encouraging that we send the patients to the genetic counselors. I think initially there was excess capacity, there was business. Uh, and as things, as the world has changed very quickly in prostate and in other cancers too, 
uh, they really are hidden capacity. So I think the we're evolving toward a, a preference being that we order the initial test um, and really only refer the patients who have a finding, whether it's um, whether it's clearly a, a cancer-related variant or at least a variant of un unclear significance. Those are the patients who really need to go through the um, the more detailed conversation. So I will usually have a very uh, you know kind of a brief overview conversation with the patient and kind of put the option for counseling and testing up for them, but I, I think very soon we're going to be shifting toward, you know, IAQ or clinician directed pre-test counseling. And that, that's where, so that's yeah. where we've been for the last maybe a couple of years now um, yeah. with a lot of work to, to get there because it's complicated. So, yeah. I mean, truly nobody knows better how to do this and has written about it and given great talks about it in Veda. So let's hear from you, if you don't mind, kind of, it, you know, for the, for the urologist who's thinking about, okay, I'd like to take this on in my practice and maybe there isn't a genetic counselor within 100 miles um, or the, just the ones that are you know nearby are absolutely maxed out, what do we do? Yeah, yeah, and, and this is the real kind of practical kind of boots on the ground type of question and, and um, you know, thinking through the processes. This is one of the, this was one of our key areas that we wanted to try to wrap our, um, our minds around in the Philadelphia Consensus Conference was how do we now adapt the genetic evaluation model to handle the fact that there are many thousands of men, if we just talk about it in the prostate cancer world, um, many thousands of men who now are, um, you know, would qualify for genetic testing, for germline testing, and would need to see a genetic counselor. Um, that might not be a sustainable model, given that, you know, there's only a certain number of genetic counselors in the United States. Um, this is not only relevant for prostate cancer, but it you know, spans multiple other cancers. So, um, so what I would suggest is the number one thing is for urologists in practice who would like to start incorporating germline testing into their clinical flow and clinical uh, practice is to first build some type of relationship with a genetic counseling service or team, whether they're close to you or nearby, purely because we know that there's going to be shared clinical care that's going to be happening for a subset of the patients. So that's number one. And, and they'll get a lot of guidance from the genetic counselors as well as far as thinking of ways to deliver pretest genetic counseling or genetic education, which patients should probably be referred up front to genetic counseling because they're more complex. They have a complex or detailed family history. Uh, they have a significant anxiety. There's some reason that they need to see a genetic counselor um, and are just not quite simple. But you know that's helpful to know which patients to refer up front for pretest counseling. And then of course, then on the um, uh, side of testing, which tests are preferred for giving accurate information about the germline testing. So as Dan had mentioned, there's there are a wide array of tests available. There are multiple laboratories doing clinical testing. Which ones have experience? Which ones would they be recommending to go with? So that's another, I think, key piece that would be um, necessary to vet ahead of time. And then um, which patients to refer after testing is, is performed. So um, you know, there's a lot of things to discuss in the pretest counseling setting. So, for example, you know, as was mentioned, it is really important to, um, first of all, you know, identify the correct patients for thinking of germline testing. That goes back to the guidelines and the purpose of testing. So, precision medicine is now driving a lot of this. So, we can see why oncologists and urologists would want to try to incorporate germline testing in their practice. Um, and then also, you know, the collection of family history thinking about who's going to be collecting the full family history because ultimate recommendations to the men and impacting of their families will still include family history. Um, and so whether that's a, you know, a three generations of cancers, age of diagnoses, what type of cancers, did they die from these cancers? Is it going to be collected by the urologist in the pretest setting or should it be collected afterwards uh, when testing is done? But 
refer to a genetic counselor based on the information that is obtained from family history. Um, going over the options for testing. Again, as was mentioned, there are lots of different panels for testing. So there are focus panels where there's guidelines associated. Some patients only want that. They just want to know what can they do with the information. In those smaller panels, there's lower rates of variance of uncertain significance, the VUSs. So patients that don't want a lot of uncertainty are more um, sort of, they, they uh, lean towards the focused smaller panels. But there are also very large panels, 80 plus genes that are available for testing. And many of those genes are, may not be relevant to prostate cancer, whether it's treatment or risk. And so men need to understand that. But a lot of patients just want to go big. They want the information. They're fine with uncertainty, even if we don't know what to do with a lot of that information. So going over what are the pros and cons of the various panels that are available and the variance of uncertain significance that might be um, uncovered. You know, another big piece to realize is that when we do testing for germline mutations, we are interested, of course, you know, in the, from a urology setting about prostate cancer and the impact on prostate cancer, whether it's treatment management or risk. Um, but for example, BRCA2 will uncover, if there's a mutation found, a risk for male breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, and melanoma. So a man may be stepping into additional cancer risks, some of which sound scary, um, and they need to know that up front so they're not blindsided when they get their results back. And then, of course, for their relatives, you know, female breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and all of the other cancer risks that apply. So they need to understand that as well. A big um, piece of this discussion that is really relevant for men uh, in the screening setting or long-term survivors, but I think should be discussed with all patients, is the GINA law. So this is the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. Um, this particular law was put into place to help provide protections for mutation carriers from employment discrimination and health insurance discrimination. Um, but there are some um, uh, areas that are not covered by the GINA law. So small businesses are not covered, so 15 employees or less. Um, there is not protection for life insurance, long-term care, or disability insurance. So if you have a man who's otherwise healthy, thinking about what's my risk for prostate cancer, thinking about informing screening, they're the ones who really have to think about, do they have these plans in place? Or does anything need to be put into place before testing is conducted? This is what uh, the expertise of the genetic counselors really is, is very much um, you know, honed in for. Um, they are also very good at the psychosocial impact of testing. So there can be a lot of guilt when a mutation is found. Did I pass this on to my children? Uh, you know, those types of things. And then also, you know, of course, the impact on their treatment and management. So it ultimately, it becomes a shared decision, an informed decision by patients, but they need to know that information up front. Um, genetic counselors can deliver that. Uh, well-versed urology practice can certainly deliver that. And there's now technological tools that can be helpful, like videos and other uh, yeah. web-based approaches. Awesome. I mean, that is that is such a good rundown in a short period of time. Um, but all of those points are incredibly important. I think, you know, as urologists, we, we've been ordering genomic tests for a while, Polaris, Oncotype DX, Decipher, but that is different, right? Those are gene expression tests. They don't have anything to do with heritable mutations, heritable cancer. And so that, you know, we can't say that really enough. It's a really important point. Just to kind of keep us mildly on time, except not really, we'll go to segment three. Um, but I mean, I, I didn't want to cut anybody off. This is great info. So um, we'll, you know, this one, I think we can cover a little more quickly, which is interpreting test results and patient communication. And so, you know, the, this to kind of come back to Dan, I mean, let's say we do, you know, we order the test, and we get it back, and you know sometimes it's a, it's fine. Sometimes it's a pathogenic mutation. Sometimes a variant of uncertain significance. What? How do we interpret these? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great and I know Veda touched on this, but it's it's very it's incredibly important. I'll just start with the word of caution. I think that we should just kind of step back and say that when when um, we obtain these reports and patients show us through these reports, oftentimes they have these sort of they call them variants of uncertain significance. And I and I kind of divided into the variants that we don't know much about, and then the pathogenic ones, meaning these are mutations that cause a gain of function, loss of function, something actually viable that we know has, has a relationship to disease aggressiveness, to the availability of that person's tumor to therapeutics. The variants of un un uncertain significance um, are, are really not linked to something that we know causes disease virulence or aggressiveness. And I think that if, you, if we just start by that alone, just by disconnecting those two, and starting there, I would say that many companies, and as I'm seeing more and more reports come by, they're pretty clearly putting the VUSs in another bucket. At least they're trying to, I think, appropriately so. There are some that are trying not to report them as much, although I think they're, they're held to report whatever mutations they find. But this is where the discussion comes in with very knowledgeable people that are do this on a daily level to understand which mutations are pathogenic. So which mutations are associated with the disease aggressiveness and can be interpreted to have uh, an interplay with the, the novel therapeutics that we have uh, at play right now. What happens then is a, is a myriad of, of, of options. If there really is a pathogenic, of course, that generates cascade testing to the remaining family members. There are great effects um, on, on, on unaffected individuals who might have these mutations. We'll be discussing this a little bit later. I think Matt will talk about how this might affect patients with active surveillance. But I can, I can tell you now, uh, one of the, your bullet points there on the slide, about how these mutations might affect patients with or without prostate cancer. So I'll just say in the patients without prostate cancer, there was a very large study in Europe that looked at over 3,000 men with and without these mutations. And they found that men with mutations clearly had uh, uh, more prostate cancer diagnosed, cancer diagnosed at a younger age, and more aggressive prostate cancer. And so this has led to many studies. That, you know, University of Washington, we're doing a study. I know that you taught, of course, at the University of Michigan, have a very large study looking at men with these mutations to see whether we should maybe lower the PSA bar. At, at, in our study, we're looking at men with these mutations that have a normal PSA, but it's slightly high like let's say 2.5 or two. And we would suggest maybe they should get an MRI or get a urine biomarker or something else. And so I think this is changing how we look at men who do not have prostate cancer. So the unaffected ones, we'll get into later, I think how it affects the men who have early diagnosis or localized disease or, or metastatic disease later in, in this conversation. So, I mean, there's, there's just an incredible amount of material to discuss because there's, I mean, yeah. there's, there's a lot we know and a lot we don't know, but, but you know, the hypothetical, I'm sure you see these patients, I do too, is it's the man without prostate cancer, maybe an elevated PSA, maybe not, who says, um, you know, can, I just, I want your mind testing. But Dan, what do you, I mean, how do you, you know, so this is the unaffected man who's yeah. asking for your mind testing. Do you, do you offer that any, and to the to any, genetic counselor? So I do send them most mostly to the genetic counselor because we have a very robust service on that. If they're if they're an unaffected individual with absolutely no family history, then and it it doesn't as much make sense because if you look at the number of men that would take to test to find that one, it's it's a pretty big number. Yeah. If they have early fatal cancer, fatal prostate cancer in their family, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, or otherwise, 
or Lynch syndrome, obviously, they probably know already, but, or, or something that would just tell us and, and have that light bulb go off, we, we need to look more than, then certainly I do that. And, and they go through, or at this point in time, our genetic counselors go through a pretty robust process towards in counseling that patient. Yeah, towards testing. makes sense. So, yeah, so I mean, I agree with you. I, I send those, you know, I feel comfortable counseling a, a affected, you know, person, individual, meaning they have prostate cancer and doing the pretest counseling, I don't feel comfortable offering tested to men without prostate cancer. So those are patients that I refer certainly to genetic counselors for that that counseling because it's it's an even more complicated conversation, I think. Um, yeah. So but so that you know so there are these you know lots of guys out there now that are that we are that, that don't have prostate cancer that we know of but have a known mutation. Um, you talked about the impact trial Matt what you know if you see a patient with a BRCA2 mutation and they're 38 and they show up in your clinic, what do you, today, what would you do? Yeah, yeah look, and we're starting to see these, right? As, as you know, more and more people are getting tested for all kinds of indications, we are starting to see these and I'm starting to get exactly that sort of referral. And I think what we need to remember there is that PSA is a spectacularly great test in terms of its negative predictive value when the PSA is under the median, which like we don't know the population median at 38, but at 45, it's around one or 0 0.7, 0 0.8. Um, you know, and 1.0 is a really good negative predictive value threshold uh, up to at least age 60, and that's the majority of the population. So, you know, you have a man with an elevated risk based on a germline mutation or maybe an un uncertain significance uh, variant, uh, but they've got a PSA of 0 0.6, which they do the majority of the time. I'm still very reassured for, for that man. Um, you know, in the situation that you brought up before, we are seeing more and more but again, you know, we have a lot of other tests we can use as secondary screens now. There's a lot of interest in using SNP panels to figure out should we uh, you know, adjust the threshold for early testing or what the threshold should be for further evaluation. And they work to an extent, but we also have 4K, select MDX, XODX, and there's a lot of other tests that we can use uh, to help make decisions about further workup of men with marginal PSAs. The PSA below median is still a really good negative predictive value test, as I said. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a, it's an increasingly complicated question, but we do not have good evidence yet that we should be screening differently or evaluating differently. Um, we're waiting for you guys to publish the papers. Um, but it's all then part of the reason it's taken a while to get these studies is that there's so much controversy about PSA testing in general. You know, for those of us that are advocates of early baseline testing um, with use of secondary tests and selective use of therapy only for men who have clinically significant cancers, you know, PSA is still going to work, I think, really well in the population of men uh, with variants. It's going to be a pretty uncommon situation. We don't have any any evidence that men with BRCA mutations, for example, are more likely to develop a potentially lethal cancer with a PSA of 0.7 than a man without a variant. Yep. You know, we need to get those kinds of data before we can really make a recommendation that we should use PSA differently. So when I get those referrals, which I do, I usually recommend early baseline testing around age you know, 45, as I always do. If they've got a strong family history, we can check a baseline at 40. I have checked in, you know, I've, I've only had a couple men in their 30s referred, um, and we get a baseline PSA on them. And it's, I mean, we're talking about less than five cases here. They've all been low, and the men have been reassured. And we don't really know what the interval should be for the next test, probably a little narrower than what it would normally be. You know, normally you get a low, you get a low baseline PSA. Uh, we would argue you don't need another one for five to 10 years. I think the guy with a BRCA mutation probably needs another check sooner. Um, but again, annually, be, but... you know, 
I, you know, we don't know. We don't know. You know, 0.6 at 38 is still pretty good. You know, yeah. um, I, I think, and there we'll look at other factors too. So we'll look at family history. I will look at ethnicity there. We haven't really talked about the fact yet that almost all the evidence we've got about uh, these variants comes from Caucasian cohorts. Um, so I will look a little bit more carefully at African American men and certainly men with a family history of early lethal disease. Yes, you know, we're going to check. Very aggressive. That's such an important there's, point. There's, yeah. there's, there's cases of Martini where they've done prophylactic prostatectomies now. I'm not suggesting we should be doing that. Anyway. Go, going, we need a half hour for, to get into <laughs> that issue, to get into steps. The, yeah. the issue with the lack of data in non-Caucasian populations is huge, and it's yeah. a massive deficit. And, you know, I think when we really look at, say, the NCCN early detection guidelines, we need to look at all of these issues very carefully and in different ways, because right now we say, sure, you know, BRCA2 mutation, BRCA1 mutation, start screening at age 40. Uh, black male starts screening at age 40. You know, data is um, is not great, um, you know, and so this is, this is consensus, and we've certainly got a lot more to learn. I want to keep pushing forward because I want to get to segment four and have some time there. Just to summarize segment three, you know, we touched on the critical role of genetic counselors, um, we touched on, you know, pathogenic and likely pathogenic mutations and communicating the possibility of variants of uncertain significance to patients. Germline mutations have different implications for patients with versus without prostate cancer. And then, you know, this key issue around BRCA1 and 2 mutations and the current evidence mostly based on the impact trial that they should impact prostate cancer early detection. Um, and how we do early detection in, in guys who are young and without prostate cancer. Um, so segment four, let me, I'm still, I've, I've, I may have this, the slides figured out by the end of this, um, but there's not much time. By the way, just looking there, thank you for submitting questions. Um, the, somebody asked the question about where do we get access to the Philadelphia guidelines and that's now been posted in the chat, um, the link. And then there was another, um, somebody just really appreciated Veda, your explanation about the gene loss. So thank you for that. Um, so. You know, we've got whatever six or seven minutes for segment four, which is testing for germline mutations and implications related to novel therapies. And so, this is this we talked about this off the bat. This is partly why we are so interested in this issue right now. This, you know, because it's not just knowledge, but knowledge that can impact outcomes. And so, turning to you know Matt, let's talk about localized prostate cancer. What's why is it important to test guys with localized prostate cancer and how can it potentially impact their outcomes? Yeah, uh, look, you know, when we get testing, um, you know, what I usually advise them in is if they develop aggressive disease, of course, down the road, uh, they may have access to novel therapies like PARP inhibitors or others uh, that would be particularly relevant if they've got a germline mutation. I think there's a lot of interest and a lot more controversy around the question of whether we should think about active surveillance differently for men with mutations. Uh, there's, of course, a paper out of Hopkins uh, last year showing a higher rate of reclassification for men who have carrier mutations uh, when they start on active surveillance compared to the broader population. Now, whether the implication of that should be that we don't offer surveillance to men who have a mutation, I think that's where the controversy lies. Um, I, I will say I'm not in that camp. I mean, these are men who I think we need to follow much more carefully. They're men who I will definitely use somatic testing, I uh, think about MRI, they're men who I'm much less likely to let skip biopsies. Uh, but so my meaning, point where, meaning, meaning expression classifier. Meaning, 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 exactly, meaning deciphered or something similar to that. Um, mm -hmm. But are we at the point of saying, you know, you really should go straight to immediate treatment if you've got a low volume Gleason 6 and you're 42, 
I don't think so. I mean, that's a man I'll tell you're going to need treatment at some point in your life. It's it's when, not if, but when does not need to be now. Great. So BRCA2, you know, let's, I'm going to pull everybody. BRCA2, 42 year old BRCA2, four cores of Gleason 6, you know, 30% yeah. volume. Please yeah. let's make him, yeah, make him 45. Yeah, sure, sure. He's, he's a surveillance candidate. He's a surveillance candidate. It's, it's a when, not if, right? And I'll tell that guy, he's probably not going to make it to 60, but I'd rather have my prostate out at 55 and 45, frankly. Yeah. So and sure, I, sure I, I you're making, yeah. So, absolutely. Doc, what's your recommendation? I think surveillance is appropriate. I would, yeah. I would absolutely recommend it. Now, now, somebody who, if he really wants treatment, I would try less hard to talk him out of it than I usually would um, if he wants immediate treatment. But if he's if he wants surveillance, I think it's absolutely fine. Again, understanding it's it's when, and we need to make sure we catch it before that progression event happens. Right. So Dan, we're on the clock. So what? What? Yes. Yeah. You no. Know, yeah. He's, I, I probably I, pro I would I would lean a little bit against it. I mean, we know that BRCA2 um, mutations are linked with aggressive prostate cancer. There are probably two true and unrelated issues. They probably have a BRCA2 mutation and a Gleason 6 that's completely unrelated to the BRCA2 mutation, probably. And we have some sequencing results that that'll come out soon to show that. I would lean a little bit against it. Now, obviously, if you follow very closely and you don't miss biopsies and you watch their PSAs, you think you might be able to get that window. But I, I hesitate a little bit. There's only one study. It's only 26 patients in that actual study. There's a huge study of like over 5,000 patients being done now that we might have some results in a couple of years. Right now, I'm just cautious about it, very cautious. And maybe Matt's right. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when and probably sooner rather than later for me. Yeah, and then so Matt, how about the patient who's got um, same thing, BRCA2 mutation, he's 45 or whatever, and he's got Gleason 9 cancer? Would yeah. you cancel him any differently? Totally different story. I mean, that's that's obviously somebody that needs aggressive treatment, maybe you know, very likely heading for multimodal treatment. Um, you know, somebody 45 with Gleason 9 has a very high likelihood of micrometastatic disease that we may not find for years. I mean, this is a guy who I would love to see, you know, the adjuvant PARP inhibitor trial sort of concept. Um, you know, or platinum-based chemotherapy, you know, this is somebody who has bad biology and, you know, these are the men, the men that die of prostate cancer yeah. in the 50s and 60s are the ones that have this kind of biology identified in their 40s. So we so need true. to figure out ways to intensify for them. Yeah, great. So I want to make sure we have time to cover the metastatic settings. This is where it's really, really relevant. So, Beta, what are your comments in, in terms of where, where are we in impact of germline mutations in a guy with metastatic prostate cancer? Yeah, so I mean, for the sake of time, I mean, this is really where it, it's been driven in terms of germline testing and care um, is in the metastatic setting. As we know, you know, two PARP inhibitors were approved um, for metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer. Um, so, uh, olaparib and rucaparib. It's important just to keep in mind they're not for upfront therapy, that it is after still, um, you know, using um, some of the standard approaches that we have available. And so, you know, the question does come up so, what's the proper timing of germ germline testing in the metastatic setting? It could be early in their disease course to prepare, uh, or it could be later on at the time that we're really considering a PARP inhibitor. And it's also considering the patient's status. When are they able to synthesize all this information or when frailty might set in and things like that. It does also open a lot of um, options for clinical trials. There are many clinical trials that are going on in the, in the various phases of uh, development with PARP inhibitors, whether they're alone or in combination with various other therapies. Um, so that it'll be important to keep an eye on that um, as well in the metastatic setting. Um, 
also, I think there's an exciting space now in the biochemically recurrent setting. Um, you know, we had seen the uh, interim results uh, about with Olaparib in terms of showing some clinical activity, you know, in the biochemically recurrent setting published, um, I think, within the last year in, in JCO. And uh, more, uh, the study is still ongoing and still recruiting. But I think that might be another area with a potential advanced disease setting where we might see more germline testing happening because of the implications for treatment. Yep. And immunotherapy? Yeah, so immunotherapy too, um, in terms of the potential, um, you know, really the role in this setting for uh, patients who have DNA repair mutations or mismatch repair mutations, immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy um, is also another big area that is happening. Um, some of those, I would say the majority are still in the trial space, but it still is, it's moving forward. It's rolling out in, in what we're seeing in, in practice. And I think we should keep our, uh, keep our eyes on when those options become available for patients. Sure, but for a patient with Lynch syndrome and metastatic mm -hmm. cancer, it is an option, right? Yeah. It's an option, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, Dan, what's coming down the pike in clinical trial-wise? I, mean, I can comment a little bit about, uh, really briefly, I know for sake of time, and, and Veda mentioned some of the metastatic and the BR, BCR setting, but in the newly diagnosed setting, there's a wealth of trials that are being discussed. Heather Chang has a trial through the NCTN cooperative group in men that have mutations to have a PARP inhibitor before surgery. Um, there's a big trial that Marty Gleave in Canada is trying to lead that depending on which mutation they have, if it's a, if it's a uh, BRCA mutation, they can get a PARP. If it's a microsatellite instability, they get an IO compound. If it's a AKT, they get an AKD inhibitor. And so I think this is kind of where we're going. All right. Now, that's some, sometimes tumor sequencing as opposed to germline, but it all plays in the same thing. I think that one of the messages that is very hopeful is that if you look at the guidelines for colorectal, for lung, for breast, they are replete with markers. Now, they're not all germline, but they're looking for uh, all sorts of ALK, uh, BRAF, uh, in breast cancer. There's, of course, HER2 and ERPR. We're nowhere near there yet, but I think we're getting there, of course, with all the efforts of, of many on the panel. And I hope that we will get to that point where we can really uh, define who gets what therapy. Um, so let me just, you know, say thank you to three of you guys. That was awesome. And I'm, I'm going to go and w wait for that podcast to be up and I'll go listen to it in car, car sometime. Cause that was that really, the, the content was so good. Thank you guys. Thank you all for joining us and I hope everybody enjoys the rest of your day.